Good morning. morning. Welcome to Westside Community Church. Uh, We're so glad you joined us. Uh, Special welcome to our visitors. We love visitors. Um, um, Come find me afterwards. Love to get to know you. um, Talk with you a little more. I do want to say a special welcome to my parents. Uh, My parents, Dave and Janet Shores, are here. Um, So listen, you have any complaints, you have them to blame. Uh, It's it's all their fault. Um, This is... This is their first time up here um, since we started back in May, uh, so they're getting to know the neighborhood, uh, spending some time with us, but, but let's be honest, they're, they're really here to see Emma, um, and you know, I'm, I'm alright with that, I have no problem with that. Um, so to so find them afterwards, um, welcome them uh, to Woodside, um, they're, they're very glad to be here. Um, but, we gotta get to work, uh, we gotta get to Mark, um, so this morning, um, we're gonna be in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 30, um, and the more I study this, the more I become obsessed with Mark, uh, the more I continue to appreciate um, Mark's masterful writing skills, um, uh, particularly in, in these passages we're in the middle of right now. Um, you can find that passage on page 844 in the Bible if you're hunting for it, page 844. Um, I've mentioned before that the book of Mark is, is a two-act story, right? Well, well the climax, the, the end of the first act is our passage this morning. Right, so the first part of Mark, what we've been studying these six months, is primarily concerned with the question, who is Jesus? Right, Mark told us right off the bat, he gave us the answer, that, that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. But then he takes the next eight chapters to kind of to make that claim, to support his argument, to give us evidences and reasons and, and signs. But remember, the disciples, they don't have Mark 1.1, right? so, so they don't yet know the answer. So what we've been seeing this whole time is just this progression of, of them just not getting it. And Jesus being frustrated um, with them. Last week we saw Jesus just kind of light into his disciples, right? After all that you've seen, do you not yet understand? Well, well our passage today concludes this first section uh, with the disciples finally getting who Jesus is, right? Representing and speaking for the rest of them, Peter is going to confess Jesus as the Messiah. And this is kind of a, this is like the pivotal chapter of the book. From here on out, starting next week, the the second part of the book is not going to deal primarily with the question, who is Jesus, but with the question, what has Jesus come to do? So the first half of the book is about the identity of Jesus. The second half of the book is about the mission of Jesus. And that's what we'll see him explain clearly for the first time next week. But this week, we've got to wrap up the first section. This week, we're still dealing with the identity of Jesus. Of Jesus. It has taken us eight long chapters to get to this point, right? It should kind of feel like a sense of release, like, phew, finally, right? They, they get it, right? But the important question should be why? Why now? Why all of a sudden do the disciples get it at this point? And this is where Mark's mastery as a writer kind of starts to shine through. He doesn't jump straight to the confession, he gives us something first, right? We're going to look first at another miracle. Another, another sign. And remember, as we talked last week, signs are meant to convey information. They're meant to share a message, to teach us something. And this sign that we're going to look at this morning teaches us something very important. So, first we're going to see Jesus restore the sight of a blind man. And only then are we going to see Peter confess Jesus as the Christ. So always remember, I'm stressing the importance of context. We want to read the second part of our passage in light of the first part. We're going to see the important lesson that the healing of the blind man teaches us about Jesus and about his salvation. So we're going to look first at that physical healing, and then we're going to let that inform the second half of the passage where we're going to see a great spiritual healing. 
Right, so physical healing first that teaches us about spiritual healing. So look there at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 30, page 844. Follow along as I read. This is God's word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for revealing yourself um, to us through it. Father, we would be utterly lost. Um, we would have no hope without you um, revealing yourself to us um, through your son, Jesus Christ, and, and then through the word. So, Father, take away any distractions or cares um, right now. Father, focus me, um, focus all of us on your word and on what you want us to learn about your son, Jesus Christ, um, through it. Father, we pray that you would get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so, so our story obviously opens with another miracle, right? another, another sign. And it's clear that there must be something particularly significant about this sign that Mark wants us to learn. Why is that clear? Because this is one of only two miracles in the entire book of Mark that are not included in Matthew and Luke as well. Right, so, so that's interesting. But what's the other miracle? Well, the other miracle is the healing of the deaf man just a few verses earlier that we just looked at. And that makes this even more interesting. The only two miracles that aren't included in Matthew and Luke that Mark includes are these two miracles. So Mark's trying to make a point. He's trying to teach us something. And again, this is one of my favorite parts of the book because I think what he's doing is just, is just masterful. What Mark is doing is he is signifying the spiritual with the physical. Right? Mark is, is showing us what Jesus is about to do for the disciples spiritually with what he does in these two miracles physically. So, in 7, 31 through 37, he restores a man's ability to hear. Right? Then there's another sign. Jesus feeds 4,000. Then the Pharisees don't hear the sign. And then the disciples don't hear the sign either. And Jesus, himself frustrated, exclaims, Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? But then what happens next? Right? He fixes a man's eyes. Right? He restores sight. So going back to the end of 7, he fixes ears and restores hearing. He says, can you not hear? And he says, do you not see? And then he fixes eyes and restores seeing. Once again, as is often the case with Mark, right? Mark doesn't include a lot of teaching of Jesus. But what Mark does is he, he shows Jesus teaching us by his actions. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, this is what I'm going to have to do for you, for you to get this. I am restoring this man's physical eyes and ears, these men. I'm going to have to restore your spiritual eyes and ears. So, we see him restore the, the blind man, but if you notice, there's something pretty unique about this occasion. Jesus heals a lot of different blind people um, throughout the Gospels, and we see him do tons and tons of miracles. 
But there is not a single other miracle in all of the Gospels where Jesus does it like this. Right, look at the end of verse 23 to verse 25. Jesus spits on his eyes, and again, that seems weird to us, but just like last time, he's, he's signifying to the man by his actions what he's going to do. He, he touches him, and then he asks the man, Jesus never does this, he asks the man, do you see something? And it says, and he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Right? This is notable, and this is strange, because it is a two-stage miracle. And that never happens again in the rest of the Gospels. So, so this should tell you that there must be a reason that Jesus does it this way. It's not like he tried once. It's like, what do you see? He's like, I don't know, trees. Like, oh, I messed up. All right, let me, let me, let me try this again. Let me, let me get this right this time. No. He obviously can heal the man with one touch, with one word, with one thought. So, so why does Jesus choose to do it like this? Again, it's a sign. Jesus never does anything without a reason. He's trying to teach us something. Right? He is acting out here what he is about to do for his disciples. It is a, a two-stage progressive spiritual healing and restoration of ears and eyes. We're going to talk about this more in a second. But in just a few verses, right, we're going to see Peter confess Jesus as the Christ. We're going to see his eyes open. We're going to see him get it. But then if you sneak ahead and look to next week, a few verses later, we're going to see that they still don't completely get it. Right? They're, they're, he's, he's gonna, Jesus is going to tell them what he's going to have to do, and Peter's going to say, no, 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 no way, Jesus. You're not doing that. Right? He doesn't get it. Then at the end of the book, right after all of his teaching, Jesus gets arrested. And what happens? Wait, they freak out. They don't understand. They all run away and hide from Jesus because they still don't get it. They're still not seeing completely clearly. Because it is, a, it is a process of opening and restoration. And this is what Jesus is showing us. He gives us a physical two-stage healing to teach us about the spiritual healing. Right? We're about to see their eyes open, but they're still going to be looking like, at people like they're trees walking around. They're still not going to completely get it. Right? So, so move on into our second part, to verse 27. And they're traveling as they always do. Jesus teaches while they're on the road. He says, you know, who do people say that I am? And we've seen all these answers with Herod. Uh, they say John or Elijah or, or one of the prophets. And these are all good people. I mean, let's, listen, I'd love to be called Elijah or something. But listen, not, not good enough for Jesus. So then he, he turns the question and he makes it personal. And he faces them and says, but who do you say that I am? doesn't matter what all they, what all they say. Who do you say that I am. And this is the question that every one of us in here must wrestle with and answer. Who do we say that Jesus is? And Peter, again, representing and speaking for the rest of the twelve, he, he steps up and he says, you are the Christ. And that's it. That, boom. That's, that's the end of the first act of the book of Mark. That's, that's the climax. This is everything that Mark has been striving and working for was to get to this point. He's been trying to make his case that, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And now the disciples are starting to see. So what I want to do first is I want to look at, at this spiritual healing, right? Why do they get it? It's because they have been spiritually healed, right? So I want to first see what the cause of that spiritual healing is. Right, your, your first temptation may be to think, 
Oh, finally, right? They, they, they figured it out. They, they studied enough. They thought about it a whole lot. They, they crunched the numbers. They, they ran some equations. They, they worked through the steps. And they finally came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah. Right? So maybe Jesus' response was, good job, guys. You're, you're the first ones smart enough to figure this out and, and choose rightly. You, you've done it. Um, your choice has, has saved you. It's like the end of the movie. Have you ever seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Anyone? These were my favorite movies. Corleone is excited. Yes, Corleone. I love these movies growing up. Right? If you know anything about them, Indiana Jones, it's starring Harrison Ford. All the ladies love Harrison Ford. Um, and he, he plays Indiana Jones, and he's always fighting the Nazis. Right? He's always battling and racing with the Nazis to get something. Well, in this third movie, he's trying to find the Holy Grail. Right? And the Holy Grail is according to legend. It was like the mythical cup that Jesus drank from from the Last Supper. And, and if you found the mythical cup and drank it, you got eternal life. Right? Just read the Gospels and figure out, it tells you how to get eternal life. They're, they weren't paying attention. But they're looking for this cup on how to get eternal life, how to gain immortality. So, right, there's a long movie. They, they finally find the location. And you remember what happens. They, they find where it's located. And what happens? There's just dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of cups all scattered around the room, all right? So the game is, right, you have, to, you have to pick one cup and drink from it, right? But if you choose wrong, if you get the wrong cup, you die. Get it right, great reward, get it wrong, and you die. So what is it? It's a battle of wits. It's, it's a battle of intelligence. Who knows more about Jesus? Who can interpret what they know about him, relate that to the various cups around, and then choose correctly? So, of course, the Nazi goes first. He's a, he's a greedy fellow. He finds the nice, big, giant gold cup. It's, it's covered in jewels. Truly, this cup was, was fitting of a king, right? And, and he drinks from it, and in great 80s movie fashion, like, he, he withers away, and, and he dies, right? And the really famous line from the movie is right after that, where the guardian of the cup kind of says, he chose poorly, right? So he dies because he, he chose poorly. But then what happens? Indy is smarter. Indy knows more about Jesus, he understands, he puts that intellect into use, and he finds the plainest, simplest wooden cup, and says, this would be the cup of a carpenter. So he drinks, and he's correct, and the, and the, and the guardian says, you have chosen wisely, right? Indy is smarter, he chooses wisely, so Indy is rewarded. Right? And what I'm explaining is because this is basically how many people understand salvation. Right? Unsaved people are just like the Nazis who weren't smart enough and they chose poorly. Christians, are, we're, we're the ones that are smart enough. We choose wisely, so God rewards our choice. Right? But we've already seen the problem with that. If, if eternity is dependent on just our choice, then ultimately we are the ones who determine our fate who get credit for our salvation. We were better, smarter, wiser than everyone else, and so we chose correctly, right? But what does that do? This makes salvation dependent on our works and not on God's grace. And as we've seen, that is extremely problematic. In his salvation, his reward was based upon his works. He earned it. He deserved it. He was better informed and made the good choice, so he is rewarded. It's, it's works. But if you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, right, Matthew chapter 16 is the same account of, of the story we're talking about in Mark chapter 8. And, and Matthew gives us a little more detail um, about this account um, that kind of helps shed some light on, on what we're talking about here. 
In Matthew 16, 17, right, in the previous verse, Peter's just confessed him as the Christ again. And Jesus responds and says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. All right, Simon is Peter. Same person. Bar just means son. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And then it says, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And that's huge. All right, Jesus says, Yes, you've got it. Because God revealed it to you. Right? It is revelation. It is, it is God's doing, not Peter. That's why he didn't say, good job, Peter, you're smart. He said, blessed are you, Peter, because God has revealed this to you. And that's what grace is. Right? Grace is something that we do not deserve, that we do not earn. We're not just good enough so God is impressed and he has to save us. We're not just smart enough that we figure it out and, and Jesus and we basically save ourselves. No, it is, it is God working in us. God saves us. Right? Jonah 2.9 says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Not you, not me, but him. Salvation is, it is God's doing in all facets. He, he plans it. He executes it. He applies it. It is, it is God who saves and not man. Right? And that's exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 3. He tells Nicodemus there in that famous passage, he says, you must be born again. Right? Well, being born the first time is not something that we have any hand in doing. Right? My wife is pregnant. We've got four pregnant ladies in this church. Right? Our daughter, who has no name, we don't know how we're going to name her. Somebody give us some suggestions. But she's not in a month or so going to be like, yep, this is it. This is the time I choose to be born. No, right? Our parents make us, we're in there, and then our mothers birth us. They do all the work. Do not offend your mother by trying to take some of the claim for your birth, right? She put a lot of work into that. It was her doing, right? We don't have a say in the matter, right? We are dependent on an outside source, our parents, for the first birth. And it is no different for the second birth. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot spiritually rebirth ourselves, in Scripture, from beginning to end, it is clear that God is the great initiator. He acts first, and we act in response. 1 John 4.19 says that we love. Why? Because God has first loved us. He acts. We respond. John 15.16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Right? So what it boils down to is that either you are responsible for your salvation, or God is responsible for your salvation. Right, so, so the big question here with Peter, and the big question for you should be then, why are you saved? And why is your sister or your friend or someone else not saved? Right, is it because you made the right choice and they didn't? Or is it because a choice that God made that you then responded to? The question is, who gets the credit for Peter's confession here? Does Peter get the credit or does God get the credit? Who gets the credit for your salvation? Do you get the credit or does God get the credit? Because over and over again, the Bible affirms that God gets all the credit. Because he acts first, right? We do not save ourselves. We're not good enough. He saves us. He is God. He is sovereign. He is king. Right? But none of that minimizes the importance of our response. We've seen this already multiple times. Every single one of us is called to respond to the gospel. Jesus says, repent and believe. Right? But as our articles of faith say, and as, and as 2 Timothy 2 and Ephesians 2 and, and many other verses say, this, this response, this, this faith and repentance, these are, these are gifts that God gives us. That's what the new birth is. 
Remember, we spent multiple weeks looking at what Jesus had to say about our evil, dead hearts. Right? The new birth that Jesus talks about in John 3 is, is the Holy Spirit coming in and bringing those dead hearts back to life. Right? Enabling us to then respond in, in faith and repentance. God acts and then we respond. So Jesus says to Peter here in our passage that God has revealed this to you. He says the same thing in Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26. He's praying to God and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Right? We don't just, listen, I'm not that smart of a guy. Right? We don't just figure this stuff out. God reveals this to us. My salvation is dependent on his revelation. And I'm belaboring this point because it is so important to understanding the gospel and to truly appreciating how amazing God's grace is. Right? This is why we talk about total depravity so much. First, because Jesus talks about total depravity so much. And second, because it is only in understanding depravity just how sinful and fallen and separated from God we are, how there's nothing we can do about it on our own. Only then understanding that allows us to fully appreciate grace and then to properly worship and thank God for it. Right, this is what we talked about on Thanksgiving, if you were here. Right? I, I gave this illustration about Ricky. Right? Ricky, you know, he's a man of means, I, I hear. Right? So this was the illustration. I'm just kidding. He's not. Don't, don't, listen. I'm not, don't go to Ricky asking for money. But here's, here's what we were talking about. All right, say I was gone, right, and, and Ricky's kind of at my house while I'm out of town, and someone comes in to collect a bill that I owe. Right? And Ricky pays that bill for me. But what is my response to Ricky? Well, if you think about it, my response to Ricky is completely dependent on the size of the bill that he paid for me. Right, say it was the post office. They came like, hey, you didn't put a 46 stamp, six stamp on, your, on your letter. And Ricky pays it for me. Ricky's like, hey, I paid your 46 cent stamp. I'm like, thanks. Oh, I appreciate that. That was nice. But, you know, 46 cents. Come on. I appreciate that, but not that big of a deal. But imagine if while I was gone, my, my previous landlord came by the house, right? And he's like, hey, you didn't pay your last month rent. You owe us $1,400. And Ricky stood there in my place and paid that bill for me. Right? Well, my response to Ricky when I got back would be so much bigger. Ricky, thank you for paying that massive bill that I would have struggled to pay. You have really helped me out. Thank you, Ricky. But imagine if the IRS showed up at my door and said, Matthew Shores, you owe $250,000 in back taxes that you have never paid. Right? It's, you, your bill is due. I don't, I promise. I don't know that much. Jerry and DJ and our financial guys are freaking out. Um, no, I don't, I don't have that debt. Um, but no, what if they came and demanded this $250,000 debt and, and Ricky stood there in my place while I was gone and paid that bill for me? What would my response to Ricky be? It, neither of the previous two responses would come close to being enough. Right? I would need to fall down at Ricky's feet and offer my, my service to Ricky. Because what has Ricky done? Ricky has utterly saved me. Right? My response to Ricky's paying my bill is completely dependent on the size of that bill. I can't know whether just to pat him on the back and say, thanks man, or to say, you have saved my life and I owe you everything. Right? He's either paid a tiny small bill that I could have handled myself or he has utterly saved me. Right? The size of the debt paid determines the response. The size of the debt paid for us determines our response to that. 
And this is why understanding your sinful heart and your condition apart from God is just so important. If your sin was just some minor issue, if you were just basically fine, just made a few mistakes here and there, and you could just kind of resolve those issues on your own power by just figuring it out, by, by choosing the right cup, well, then your gratitude is going to be small, right? In fact, you're probably going to be a little bit thankful to yourself. Man, good job, me. I, I figured this out. I read the book. I got it. Uh, I'm glad I made the right choice and God saved me. But if, as the Bible says, God looks at us as sinful and wicked, if he, if he sees our hearts as spiritually dead, spiritually devoid of life, and there's nothing we can do about it, right? If we are corpses lying at the bottom of the sea, right? The, the illustration of, like, you've got a raft and you're floating out to sea and someone th throws you a rope and you swim over to it and grab it and that's salvation. That's a terrible illustration, right? That's just awful. Right, the biblical illustration is that we're dead on the bottom of the ocean. That's it. You can't reach out and grab a life raft. We're not floating and keeping our No, we're, we're dead on the bottom. Right? And if we're dead on the bottom, right, but, but God comes in and rescues us. If he breathes life into our dead corpses, if he gives us brand new hearts, perfect records, restores us in the right relationship with him, all while we did and deserved nothing, well, understanding that, we just open the floodgates and release a deluge of gratitude and thanks. Look at God's amazing grace. Look at what he has done for me. Something that I could have never done for myself. Something that I did not deserve or earn. A bill that I could have never paid. But he paid it for me anyways. Because he is merciful and gracious and kind. And that's simply what grace is. That is why this is so important. That's why we've got to get this right. We want God to get the credit that he deserves. Because he is God and we are not. And, and, if, and if we miss this point, we're not going to fully appreciate what he has done for us. We're not going to give him his proper due. And that's why we sing songs like um, oh, Glory Be Forever. That's why we just sang Hark the Herald. Glory be to the King. Right? Glory just means the praise and the honor, the worship, the due, the credit. Right? All of it goes to Him and not to us. Right? Listen. Either your system of theology, right? either how you understand God and the Bible, either it's going to make much of what you did, right? or it's going to make much of what God has done for you. Right? What we want to do is we want to err on the side of making much of God. Right? I want to err on the side of giving Him the credit and the glory and the honor. I want to err on the side of putting His action at the center instead of my own. And again, this is simply what, what Woodside's Articles of Faith historically have said. Right? Article 11 says, The new creation is brought about by our sovereign God in a manner above our comprehension, solely by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in and works in our hearts. He, he opens our eyes. He acts he initiates, that's what grace is. Not, good job, Simon, you figured it out. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this, this solves the great riddle, right? This solves the great mystery of the disciples. You've had to be wondering throughout these eight long chapters, how could they be so dense and slow? How could they not get this? It's so obvious. It's right in front of their eyes. Right? They could not yet understand because God had not yet revealed it to them. Right? They were like the blind man. 
They had no spiritual sight. God had not yet opened their eyes, but now at this point in the story, he had. Their eyes and their ears were open. Their hearts were softened. Now they perceived, now they understood that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Right? So that is the cause of the spiritual healing. It is God working on their hearts. It is an act of grace. It is the Holy Spirit revealing the identity of Christ to them. Right? And this then takes us to, to the result of that spiritual healing. Remember, this is the climax of the first part of the book. Everything has been building to this point. He's been very patient with the disciples. He's gone to great lengths to get them here. He opens their eyes and they finally see. And that's, that's, that's the result. They, they see clearly now, right? They, they see that he is the Christ. And we've talked multiple times about what that means, right? Christ is, is not Jesus' last name, right? It, it, it's a title. It is, it is the Greek word um, for the Hebrew word Messiah, right? And the words both just mean anointed one. We've talked about how there were three classes of people in the Old Testament who were anointed, right? There were the prophets, the priests, and the kings, right? And to be anointed was to be set apart for a certain task. It was, it was God choosing someone to do something specific for him. And there were a lot of people that were anointed kind of throughout the Old Testament, but if you go back and read through the entire thing, right, you start to pick up on all of these references to the coming of this one particular individual of great significance. Not, not a anointed one, an anointed one, but, but the Messiah, the anointed one. This Messiah, we're told, will be prophet, priest, and king, all rolled up into one person. Right, in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses declares that God will one day raise up a prophet like him. And that prophet will, will only speak God's words. In Psalm 110 verse 4, God says to his Messiah, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Zechariah 9.9 says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Right? The Messiah fulfills all three roles, prophet, priest, and king. And that's what Jesus does. And only Jesus could do this. Only the God-man could, could fully fulfill these roles. As, as prophet, he comes speaking to us the very words of God. As priest, he, he acts as our mediator, right? going between God and man. As king, he is sovereign over us. He is the all-powerful but all-good ruler that we also desperately need. And desperately desire. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one that God has promised from the very beginning, right away in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall. God just kind of gives a little taste, a little, a little hint. He says, I'm going to send somebody. He says, somebody's coming who's going to crush Satan. Right? And then the rest of the Old Testament is all just kind of moving towards this one that's going to come and fix everything. Right? And that's Jesus, right? He's the one that the whole Old Testament it's about, right? It's, it's all hinting at him, pointing toward him, whispering his name, right? The Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. That's what he says in Luke 24. That's what he says in John chapter 5. At the very beginning of John, right, Nathaniel, no, Philip meets Jesus, right, and he runs to tell Nathaniel. And what does he say to him about Jesus? He says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. They say, listen, we found the one that all the guys writing the Old Testament were writing about. And that's why we're so trying to emphasize the Old Testament. That's why we teach through it I'm in Sunday school and on Sunday evenings. Because it's also all about Jesus. 
He's the point of everything. So we've got to know those books to have a fuller understanding of who he is and what he has done. That's why we introduced the song by faith today. Right? The second verse says, by faith the prophets saw a day when the longed for Messiah would appear with the power to break the chains of sin and death and rise triumphant from the grave. Even the prophets were looking forward a thousand years earlier to, to Jesus Christ. Right? Because it's always been about Him. Right? That's the point of Christmas, what we're getting ready to st- uh, celebrate. Not Santa, not presents, not trees. This is, it's about the appearing of the longed-for Messiah. It's about God Himself coming in flesh to break the chains of sin and death and to rise from the grave. It's about the advent. It just means the, the appearing, the, the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He is our savior. And that is all that is wrapped up in Peter's confession of him as the Messiah. Right? So, so Peter's finally starting to get it. He's finally starting to understand the identity of Jesus. Right? But he's not all the way there yet. Look at verse 30. Once again, our passage ends on a bit of a strange note. We've seen this a couple times. Their eyes have been opened, right? This is the most important news in the world. Jesus is the Messiah. We have got to tell everyone about this. But verse 30 says, And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why? Right? We've talked about this. This is, this is that important theme in Mark that is referred to as the messianic secret. The secret. We, we've seen Jesus do this Multiple times with his healings and, and miracles. Um, Jesus commands silence many times, and he commands silence here from his disciples. Why? Because they are still at the point of only seeing partially. Right? They're still seeing people as trees walking around. They're still in the first stage of the miracle of, of the sight being restored. They've got that he was the Messiah, right? Thus, the first half of Mark is closed. But they haven't yet understood the second half, which starts next week. They still yet have no idea what Jesus, as the Messiah, has come to do. They get the identity, but they don't yet get the mission. Remember, there were all kinds of messianic expectations in Israel back then. And pretty much all of them were wrong. And the disciples would have had many of these expectations as well. You think back to the feeding of the 5,000. We looked at, I looked at the count of that in, in John. Remember, the people start to work themselves up into a frenzy. They start to kind of realize that Jesus might be the Messiah. So what do they try to do? They, they try to take him by force to Jerusalem to, to establish him as king. So Jesus throws all his disciples in the boat. He, he kicks them out the sea and says, get out of here. I don't want you to get caught up in this as well. And Jesus kind of deals with the crowds because they don't quite get it yet. Because their general expectation of the Messiah was was a a political figure. He was a military leader. He was going to come in and and free the Jews from the oppression of Rome. He was going to vanquish their enemies and establish their kingdom. He was a warrior, a a conqueror. He would wipe out the godless nations and and get rid of the Romans and reestablish the perfect righteous kingdom of Israel. So Jesus is basically saying to his disciples here, good, you understand that I'm the Messiah, but you still don't get what I have come to do. Again, it's, it's, it's Advent Sunday, right? We just sang the song, um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? It, it comes from Luke chapter 2. And there they declare to the shepherds, they say, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, 
the Lord. Right? So the angels tell us that this Messiah, that Jesus, is a Savior. The Jewish people at the time were looking for a Savior. Right? And a Savior obviously implies that there's something um, from which you need saving. But the Jewish people thought that their biggest problem was the Roman occupation. Right? So they were looking for a Savior to take care of what they perceived to be their biggest need. Right? So, so to the question that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Their answer would have been a deliverer, a conqueror, someone to free us from Rome. And this is an important principle, I think, because this shows us that there is a direct correlation between what we perceive to be our greatest need and how we will answer Jesus' question. Whatever you perceive to be your biggest need will determine what you look to as your Savior. Right? How you see your need will determine how you view your Savior. And again, this is why understanding sin and, and depravity are so important. Because if you get the problem wrong, you're going to get the solution wrong as well. So say there are many mainline liberal churches out there today that think you know, the main problem with the world is poverty, social inequality, and, and oppression. So their picture of Jesus is a great moral example, right? He, he came and showed us how we need to love and take care of the poor. He, he showed us a better way. He was a model of an ethic that, that we should um, put into play, focusing on the poor. Right? Sure, yeah, we should do these things, right? But notice how their understanding of the problem informs their understanding of Jesus, right? But, you know, non-Christians do this as well, because everyone is looking to someone or something to be their savior. If you think that, that the possibility of loneliness is your greatest problem, right? Relationships or, or your spouse or your family will become your functional savior, right? You pour everything you can into finding a spouse or you obsess over your family and demand too much from them because they have become your identity. They fulfill you. They bring you meaning. You may think that your biggest problem is uncertainty or insecurity or whatever you want to call it. So, so maybe your job or, or your money becomes your savior. I can just get a little more. If I can just get that promotion, then everything will be fine. Right? It becomes the thing that drives you and identifies you. So you'll do anything to get it. The point I'm trying to make is that we all have something that we treat as our savior. And whatever that thing is, is determined by what we perceive to be our greatest need. Right, so the first stage of the disciples here is, is being complete. They see that he's the Messiah, but they still don't understand what he has come to do because they also don't yet understand what their greatest need is. That's what the next eight chapters are going to be about. And that's why Jesus spends so much time talking about sin and about our, our wicked hearts. Things that, listen, quite honestly, aren't the most positive, uplifting, encouraging things to talk about. Right? But that's why we have to talk about these things, because Jesus talks about these things, and we want to talk about the things that Jesus talks about. And this is, again, I'm going to do it one more time, and maybe I'll be done, I promise. And this is, again, why we have such a problem with Joel Osteen, as you may have noticed. Right? I'm, going to, I'm going to hammer this drum a little bit longer. Right? This man never talks about sin, or the wickedness of our hearts, or our separation from God. And he seems to only want to talk about rainbows and unicorns and fairy tales and all these nice, happy, uplifting, positive things. Because if you go read his books, it becomes very clear that he has perceived our greatest problem to be sickness, poverty, and suffering. Because the only thing that he talks about Jesus bringing is health and wealth and happiness. 
Right? His understanding of the problem determines his understanding of Jesus. Right? That's why all he talks about is the stuff that you can get from Jesus. Healing and money and an easy life. But he's completely missed it. And that is why he is so dangerous. He's like the disciples. He recognizes that there's something about Jesus important, that he's a savior, that he fixes some sort of problem. But since he so misunderstands the problem, he misunderstands the solution. He's only seeing partially. Right? He's completely missed the sin aspect. He's completely missed the fact of, of what Jesus has really come to do. And so at the end of our passage, Jesus commands the disciples to be silent about him because they don't yet get it. And it would be extremely helpful for everyone if Osteen would remain silent about Jesus because he doesn't get it either. And next week, Jesus is going to say to the disciples, he's going to say to Osteen, and he's going to say to us that you guys don't yet get it. He says, I have not come to defeat Rome. I have not come to get you married or give you money. I have not come just to be an example or to teach you. I have not come to give you health and wealth and happiness. I have come to die for you. Because your biggest problem is far bigger than you could ever imagine. Your biggest problem is death. That you are spiritually dead. And if you physically die without that problem being taken care of, then you will remain eternally spiritually dead. Right? And that death is a result of our sin. It is a result of our choice and our stubborn refusal to listen to God and our willful disobedience to the one that we owe everything. Right? All of the problems that you may have. And I understand that, that many of us in here are facing serious problems. But honestly, whatever it is that you are going through, whatever your problem is, no matter how serious, it pales in comparison to your sin problem. Right? In the grand scheme of things, from the perspective of eternity, that is the only problem that matters. And that problem is why Jesus has come. He has come to take care of that problem that we could never take care of ourselves. He has come to pay that massive bill that we could never pay. And that's what the second half of Mark is about. We now know who he is, right? Now Mark is going to show us why he has come, right, for the next eight chapters. We, we've seen stage one of the spiritual sight being restored. Now it's on to stage two, right? And that won't be complete until after the resurrection. Because remember, all of these signs that we're seeing, that Mark is showing us, they're all building up to and pointing forward to the one great sign. Right? The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. We saw last week that it was that sign that transformed Jesus' brother James from unbelieving, from trying to restrain his brother, thinking that he was out of his mind, to, to calling himself a slave to Jesus the Messiah. The disciples also won't fully get it until after the resurrection, until after the sign. So in our passage, Jesus is beginning the process. He's progressively restoring their spiritual sight. Right, so Mark employs a physical healing to teach us about our need for spiritual healing. The need for the eyes and ears of our hearts to be opened. God working on our hearts, revealing himself to us. It is the cause of our spiritual healing. And the result is that we understand that we now see that Jesus Christ is he's the Messiah. He is the Savior. Right? And his question to the disciples is the most important question in the world. And it is the one question that we almost have an answer for. Who do you say that I am? 
Not who do your parents say, not your friends, not your spouse, not who does your pastor say, but who do you personally say that Jesus is? This is the dividing line of the book of Mark, and this is the dividing line of eternity. This is the question. What is your understanding of and your relationship with Jesus? Because that's the only thing, ultimately, that really matters. And that's why we talk about the gospel every week. That's why we have to talk about sin and hell, because the good news doesn't make sense without understanding the bad news. Right? If all of this is true, then the question of Jesus' identity is the most important question in the world. Right? Do you know the answer to that question? Do you believe the answer to that question? Is that belief reflected in your life? Because as we're going to see next week, this is the most important question, but it is also the most costly question. Right? Get this question wrong, and this question will cost you greatly in eternity. But listen, also, get this question right, and it will cost you greatly right now in the present life. Jesus came to die. And if we're going to follow him, he calls us to die with him, to, to lay down our lives, to take up our cross, and to follow him. He is the model of the Christian life, and he is a model of self-sacrifice. Right? That's why the health, wealth, and happiness stuff is such garbage, because Jesus did not live a life like that. The apostles never lived a life like that. They came to live and die in the service of others. Right? And that's what we are called to do as well. Right, this, this Christianity thing isn't just something that we kind of tag on to the rest of our lives. This is our life. Right, but we're going to save that and get to that next week. Because this week it's clear that, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He has come to die for us and to restore our spiritual sight. And He only can do that by, shedding his, by breaking His body and shedding His blood for us on the cross. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Because the most important question is, who do you say that I am? All right, let's, let's turn to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. Um, we confess our sin. Uh, we confess our unworthiness, Father. And we confess that we have separated ourselves um, from you. Um, Father, we ask right now, that your spirit would work um, in, in our hearts. Father, apply these truths to us. Father, we pray that you would save sinners. Father, we pray that you would sanctify sinners that you have already saved. Father, I pray that you would work in my heart, Father, and, and con, um, confront my, my tendency to, to wonder, my tendency to try and prove myself and, and save myself and be good enough, Father, because I prove over and over again that I'm not. But Father, we thank you that our standing with you is not dependent on us. It is not dependent on my goodness. It is not dependent on my intelligence, Father, but it is dependent on your Son, Jesus Christ. His righteousness um, accredited to my account um, because of your grace, um, because of his death on the cross in my place. So, Father, I pray that you would understand um, just how amazing the gospel is, Father, just how um, the huge the debt was and how there was no way we could pay it and how you paid it for us. Father, make us a thankful people who are ultimately thankful for you and what you've done for us on the cross through Jesus. Father, we thank you for this time and uh, what you're doing in this place. And pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.